Hello, and welcome to Fraud Eat Strategy, an FTI consulting podcast series in which we explore the myriad ways that fraud, corruption, and misconduct can derail strategy and cause havoc. I'm Scott Moritz, a Senior Managing Director in FTI's Forensic and Litigation Consulting segment, where I assist clients and their outside counsel in managing their response to event-driven white-collar crime, misconduct, and bribery incidents. Thank you for listening. In this episode, we're going to delve into the psychology of white-collar criminals. Treating white-collar criminals as being different than other categories of criminal often provokes a a visceral response in some people. It's not to suggest that white-collar criminals are better than or more deserving of leniency other categories of criminal. It's just that they're wired differently, and understanding that fact can better position us to help safeguard organizations from the types of crimes that white-collar criminals commit. Joining me today are two experts on the subject of white-collar crime psychology, Nicholas Burton and Eugene Soltis. Nick is the managing partner of Sullivan Cromwell's Criminal Defense and Investigations Group and co-head of the firm's FCPA and Anti-Corruption Group. Eugene is a professor of business administration at Harvard Business School, where his work focuses on corporate integrity. He's also the author of the best-selling book, Why They Do It, Inside the Mind of the White-Collar Criminal, which was described by Kirkus Reviews as a groundbreaking study on white-collar criminality. Welcome, Nick and Eugene, and thank you for joining me today. Hi, Scott. Glad to be here. Pleasure to join. Thanks, Scott. So, Nick, you mentioned when we were discussing this subject that suggesting that the psychology of of white-collar criminals differs from that of other categories of criminals sometimes provokes a very strong negative reaction from people. What do you attribute that to? You know, but having written about it now for a couple of years and, and having seen the reaction, it is definitely true that as soon as you start describing white-collar criminals as being different in some respect and about the psychology of white-collar criminals being different in some respect from other crimes, you will instantly run into objections and screams of, of protest that what you're really trying to do is excuse the rich and the privileged and hold them to a more lenient standard than other criminals. And so I think it then invites kind of people to port um, their own kind of political priors and and, and other baggage into the discussion. And I, I think what's great about Eugene's book, the way I try to think about it is not to make value judgments here, not, not to say which is worse, getting you know, mugged at night on a street corner or having your 401k you know, plundered. Both are, are terrible things and, and terrible experiences to go through. But if you can kind of put aside those kind of normative judgments for a second and just think about what makes white collar criminals tick, I think there really are important differences. And if you don't acknowledge those, you're going to be approaching prevention, you know, deterrence, and, and prosecution and judgment differently. Those are some great points you make. And, you know, I think it also, maybe it's just the term white collar crime. It just sounds a little elitist, but it's, uh, I think that at this point, that terminology is stuck. So Eugene, certain categories of crime like armed robbery or drug trafficking are, are very personal in that the negative consequences of those crimes are very apparent to the person committing the crimes. In your book, you explain that white-collar criminals are kind of detached from and maybe completely unaware of the negative consequences that their crimes have on their victims. How does this factor into the thought process and psychology underlying the actions of white-collar criminals? One of the things that's really fascinating about most corporate misconduct is the lack of intimacy. 
there's both a physical and psychological detachment between the perpetrators, we could say the managers or executives who are engaged in the, the crimes and, and ultimately the victims. So take something like insider trading. In most cases, we can't even identify a victim. We would say it's the integrity of the market that, that's somehow undermined in the process. And as a result, it doesn't have that same visceral feeling of, of wrongdoing. Oftentimes, what's even more interesting in, in most white collar crimes is even a temporal offset in which it's the time one is actually engaged in the misconduct, it, it's not actually going to feel negative. So take something like someone who might be trying to manage their firm's financial statements right now to prop it up under this difficult time. They see themselves by helping the financials, maintain the share price, uh, their colleagues are not being fired. So at the time it's going on, they might actually not only feel not negative, but it actually might feel like the, the right thing to do. It's only quarters or years down the road when it unwinds that those negative consequences and feelings are revealed. Those are great points. In a, a letter to the SEC formalizing his guilty plea, the, the former CEO of the accounting scandal plague Satyam uh, Computer Services said that maintaining the fraud was like riding a tiger and not knowing uh, how to get off w- without being eaten, which I thought was just a great visual and kind of great way to sort of kick off this next line of questioning. Nick, you've written extensively on the psychology of white collar crime and that many white collar criminals, they, they don't necessarily realizing that they're committing a crime until they've sort of reached the point of no return. Can you explain how that sometimes happens? Yeah, it goes back to the point Eugene just made, which is so critical here. And that is, that white collar criminals are removed both physically and as Eugene pointed out, often temporally from their victims. And so all of those psychological cues that you know, humans have evolved to have when, when, they're, you know, when they're causing injury or pain or harm of some sort to another are much more subdued you know, if, if they're even triggered at all. So I think what happens is people especially people who are who can find a way to rationalize going right up to the line uh, in some sort of business practice without those cues that, you know, this could be harming somebody, they kind of get closer and closer and closer to the line. And it becomes, you know, your sort of tolerance for being near that line, which often is not a bright one, but it can be a little bit fuzzy. The white collar criminal's tolerance gets, gets sort of higher and higher and higher and then they suddenly look back and realize, like, you know, if there ever was a line, I'm now way over it. And yet they can't often, and, you know, Eugene can talk about this from his, from his interviews, they often can't pinpoint the moment where they decided to cross that line. They just kind of find themselves there one day because they, they were missing those cues and they were, you know, developing this risk tolerance to, to, to really kind of push the boundaries. There's also, I think, a lot of oftentimes interesting murkiness because a lot of these uh, crimes are actually very sophisticated. It's not, you shouldn't kill, uh, you shouldn't steal something, but it's murky. Uh, I mean, we can think of a whole pile of different kind of scenarios and interesting kind of vignettes, which kind of get to that balance. I'll say one of the ones I've been thinking about recently is actually uh, what I think of as trading in stock st- substitutes. So we all know that if you have insider, if I work, let's say, for a large tech company, and I have some material insider, uh, inside information to trade on it, that's insider trading. But what happens if I trade on a competitor's stock? Or let's go one step even more. Suppose I trade on a competitor's stock that's overweighted in some ETF. So I buy an ETF who I know is going to move very heavily because of my own firm's movements. You know, if we take the strict kind of law, that would still 
technically be insider trading, but there's effectively no way to, I would say, enforce that. So we can find a whole pile of ways people can be very clever and rationalize why what they're doing is not actually criminal, although oftentimes it's uh, that's just a continuum of murkiness. No, and, and in fact, I think it sort of that relates back to some of your findings in your book that white collar crimes, they can't pinpoint having made a conscious decision to engage in crime, you know, because perhaps it's a, a derivative of that er- erosion process that you guys are both talking about. How does that impact on the government's ability to show criminal intent if that is an important element of the statute being charged? It's really difficult. And I think that's part of the reason why white collar crime is difficult to prosecute because it is unlike other crimes, often intent is the only issue, uh, the only factual issue. You know, if, if you find a body in the street with, with two bullets in the back of its head, right? Somebody committed a murder, you're trying to figure out who did it. But when it comes to white collar crime, usually who did what and who wrote what and who said what is painstakingly clear. You have thousands and thousands of emails and, and memos and other documents. And so you know exactly who said what and, and who did what and when. The question is, is it even a crime? And sometimes I would say often that depends on the mental state of the person who took the act, who made the decision on the accounting treatment or executed the trade, you know, whatever the, the conduct at issue is. And so how do you infer intent from emails that can be often years old, from memos, which can be ambiguous? And I think it's a difficult thing for humans to do. And it's a difficult thing for humans to do when you're talking about very complex areas of of business and industry, where to really get in the head of the person who wrote the email requires so much background and understanding of the business of the culture, of the firm, of the, the, the language, of the way people in, in that business speak. And sometimes that works against defendants because sometimes the superficial reading of an email is just so damning that no amount of explaining can, can ever kind of undo what jumps off of the page at you. Other times I think it works against the government because the government's interpretation requires so much other knowledge to, to really draw out the negative from it that it becomes very, uh, very difficult and there are disincentives to prosecutors to, to even try. But it really, it's, it's the getting into the heads of people who are not at all like perhaps the, the heads of the people who are going to be doing the fact finding that makes this issue of intent so challenging. Intent's also being imposed after the fact, which is very hard um, because you're trying to reconstruct what someone was thinking at the time. I don't know, I've struggled with speeding, something we can all relate to, that, I mean, of course, anyone who drives will occasionally speed. And obviously, if you get a ticket, you can look back and say, well, were you intending to speed? On one hand, I can say, yes, I'm always intending to go 75 and 65. But am I sitting there actually, when I hop in the car, deciding that I'm going to go 75 and 65? In fact, half the time when I'm going a little too fast, it's my wife who points it out. And, you know, naturally I, spo- uh, I slow down then or some other factor comes into play. But it's very hard to know what even my mindset in that very simple example, um, much like I think any other driver would be. Yeah. And Eugene also introduces the, the concept of, of hindsight bias here, 
which is another uh, a topic I'm also very interested to in. Um, and that is because when you're judging intent in hindsight, the outcome is incredibly powerful in skewing how you, you read somebody's conduct in the past. I mean, their hindsight bias has been studied at length by psychologists and there are innumerable studies that show that the more catastrophic the outcome, the more people assume it was preventable and predictable you know, before it happened. And so you, you can do a study where you know, a mock jury is given the exact same fact circumstance. In one hypothetical I read, it had to do with you know, whether a city would flood in the event of you know, a, a hurricane. And the jury is invited to make the judgment of the people in the town about how tall the, the city walls should be to prevent you know, the wave from crashing over. And one pool of jurors is told that in the end, the 25-foot wave came in and destroyed the town. And another jury is told, you know, in the end, the, the wave was only 10 feet tall and the, the town survived. And they're asked to judge how negligent or not the townspeople were in deciding what the appropriate height of the town was. And you can guess in which one the jurors found almost unanimously that this was, you know, borderline criminal negligence in not foreseeing how tall the wave would be. This is just human nature. It's an evolutionary adaptation that we have that when we, when we look back, we take the lessons of the present and we apply it to the past. And trying to convince prosecutors or judges or juries to do that, I think is in many ways the most challenging part of being a defense attorney in white color crime cases. Well, I think it's true in investigations too. It's very hard for a, you know, a human being investigator to not bring any kind of preconceptions as to guilt or innocence into an interview room. I mean, you know, listen, sometimes you have somebody dead to rights and it's a different kind of interview, but a lot of times maybe the interview is, you know, part of the process of, you know, helping, you know, determine where the investigation lands and bringing that kind of bias to the, to the table isn't doing anybody any favors. So noted criminologist Donald Cressy advanced his hypothesis of the fraud triangle that underlying every fraud, there's an opportunity, some kind of pressure, uh, and a rationalization justifying the actions of the person succumbing to pressure and exploiting an opportunity to commit a fraud. How is Cressy's hypothesis relevant to what you learned in the course of your research, really both of you guys. <laughs> yes, I guess I should have thrown it to one or the other. <laughs> dealer's choice, uh, dealer's choice then. I, I mean, one of the factors, at least uh, among Cressy's that I find most interesting to think about is actually rationalization. I mean, many of the people that I spent time with, I'll say there wasn't necessarily that much of pressure. Uh, of course, some people face it and people that are privileged and, and high-powered positions are always facing different kinds of pressure, but many of them were not, I'll say, cornered to make a particular decision, but it's the ability to rationalize. And uh, at least when I see the very, very smart people, um, really brilliant managers who find themselves, you know, need to hire Nick uh, as a defense, defense counsel, they found some way to rationalize how something they were doing, or it's even because of how the organization's incentives are designed in a way that it makes conduct that in a different world, under a different set of circumstances, they would never consider doing seem entirely appropriate within their context. And I think this is the power of the situation. It's also the power of surrounding norms and culture to help people rationalize things that I think when they're sitting during a training exercise or in a business school classroom, they couldn't imagine doing, but five or 10 years down the road, they find themselves uh, engaging in. 
Yeah, I, I would agree with that. It, the, I think the more intelligent somebody is, the more uh, or the better they are at rationalizing their own behavior because they can just come up with ever more clever arguments as to why this is really okay. And, in, and whatever harm there is, is far outweighed. So I, I, I agree with Eugene. That is probably the number one characteristic that you will find is an ability to kind of explain away what you're doing. Because again, I, I think the people who commit white collar crime don't go about it in the same way as other criminals. They don't wake up in the morning and say, boy, I can't wait to go, you know, break the law today. They didn't go to college and uh, graduate school with the idea of, of, you know, becoming a criminal. They, they just, the pressures to achieve what they want to achieve. And I think, you know, a certain amount of, of ambition is probably a common characteristic too. This, the need for kind of peer approval and approval of their managers, I'm sure is a very common characteristic in, you know, the psychological profile as well. And then the ability to, to explain away conduct that, you know, maybe if you were, you know, less time thinking about it, it's much more clearly wrong, is certainly a characteristic that I think leads people astray. And it, it leads them to, to come up with um, often very complex, but, but well-reasoned, you know, defenses for what they're doing. And then you ask, you know, a regular person, what do you think about this? And they're like, well, that's ridiculous, which of course is the right answer. Oh, it, it's true. And, and I do think there is absolutely a, a correlation between the, uh, the intellect of the person and, the, and how elaborate a rationalization they're able to conjure in support of their actions. So no, that's a really good point. So in, in Eugene's book, he talks about the importance of uh, two things, uh, uncomfortable dissonance and, and the spouse test, which I, I, I like them both, uh, spouse test in particular. Uh, can you both explain what these terms mean and, and why they're important safeguards from a fraud prevention perspective? And maybe we start with Eugene. The basic idea was you need to break up that, that stream of thought, that rationalization as, as you kind of sit there and almost are enamored at your own creativity and cleverness and those that you're surrounded by. Those are the ways to break it. I mean, I oftentimes think of, you know, why are case studies so easy to do during training or during a classroom exercise? Someone identifies the, the situation for you, you spend 30 minutes discussing it and you do it in a room of, of people with different views and opinions. In most practice where actual business decisions are being made, all of those are lacking. People have to make very quick decisions. Generally, uh, no one's identifying that from the hundreds of other decisions they're making over the course of the day. And they're making it uh, effectively alone or with people who think exactly like him or her. So I think what we need to do is try to make the real world a little bit more like the training and case studies that we find it very easy to resolve many of these situations. I think this idea that, you know, to the, the sort of stop and, and test yourself for a second is incredibly important because I, I agree with Eugene, you know, decisions are made quickly. They're often made not in a conference room where everybody gets to test and, and play devil's advocate and, and sort of challenge your thinking, but they're made as you know, you're sitting at your desk writing something or on a phone call or looking at a Bloomberg screen and figuring out whether to, to place a trade or not. I think deterrence has to train people to stop and, and kind of get outside of their own head for a minute and say, how might this look to somebody else who's trying to find something wrong with what you're doing? What arguments would they make as to why what you're doing is illegal or unfair or somehow abusive? I think just kind of getting people to sort of think about the speed with which 
the decision is being made and then you know maybe stepping back and, and considering how it might look from the outside or even going so far as to kind of running it by somebody i mean that's those are really really important points so in the early days of the fbi's behavioral science unit which I am a fan. Uh, they interviewed multiple serial killers in an effort to gain insights into what held uh, serial homicide and to apply what they learned to open you know, serial homicide cases as, a, as a, a, a bit of a predictive tool. Many serial murderers are, are egocentric and grandiose. They, they show a lack of remorse or guilt. They're lacking in empathy and they're impulsive. And some might say these, these same characteristics could apply to, to white collar criminals. Do many of your subjects have uh, personality traits in common? I, I think we talked about the most common probably, which is a, you know, a high degree of intelligence and, and ability to, to rationalize. You know, other than that, I'm, I'm not sure you can really pinpoint very much. I mean, I think, you know, of course, I, I think many of, of my clients and, and my, my clients' employees really are, you know, sort of good, well-meaning people who never set out to break the laws or, or to break the regulations. They found themselves, you know, kind of unable to spot, again, all those cues which we've talked about are, are so hard to spot sometimes when you're, you know, sitting alone at a trading desk or in a conference room or in your office, so distant from the people you could be harming. You know, I'm not sure, even if you got the best FBI behavioral scientist, you could really come together and put together a profile in the same way. You know, my experience, the people I've met over my career are really, are really sort of different. And, and at least I haven't seen patterns like that. Eugene's inter interviewed, you know, scores of them. So maybe he's had. I, I agree. I agree with Nick. I mean, it's, it, in the early 20th century, there was a, a famous Harvard professor by the name of Ernest Hutton, who actually very much believed that you could find a type and he, he taught a popular class, wrote a book uh, published in the late 30s, which actually showed even a physical uh, picture of what a white collar criminal, he called a forger and fraudster, looked like. There has been in history people who thought you could do that, but I think we've come some way since then. And especially given that so much is driven by the sociological norms and surrounding culture, I think in many ways we're all susceptible under the right circumstances to fall prey to what you know, Cressy describes in the fraud triangle. We all have enough pressure exerted upon us. There's the right opportunity and you know we're not surrounded by people who would tell us otherwise. We're susceptible. I oftentimes put my position of, you know, someone that graduates from a great university, goes to a business school, they start on a trading desk at one of the major banks. If they look around and their MD and their colleagues are doing some particular, let's say manipulative practice, they look around and see actually everyone else at all the other major banks are doing something similar. Why would you not do that same thing? That seems to be this, how this particular kind of exotic product or exotic, at least not that many people, it's literally everyone that you're surrounded by are the only people that know how that market works. You start to think that's how this market works rather than that is some kind of manipulation. So I actually think we're all susceptible and that's why there's not really one type. Yeah, which is not to say I do, again, I wanna be clear, there are certainly white collar criminals who are sociopaths, right, and who, are remorseless and have no ability to feel, you know, empathy towards others. And, and, you know, you'll see it in like the, the billion dollar Ponzi scheme cases and the, the other really blatant frauds where there's, there's no question of intent and, and no question that that person, you know, knew that, that he or she was, was breaking the law. But I think in this area, those tend to be 
the, the, the cases that get a lot of headlines, but are the outliers. No, I, I would agree. I, you know, my own experience is, you know, the, the overwhelming majority of white collar criminals are opportunistic. They found themselves in a situation, they saw an opportunity to uh, maybe exploit weaknesses in the control environment, and then for whatever reason, were, you know, compelled to to do what they did. But they're not, you know, like inherently evil or sociopathic people. To your point, though, uh, every now and then you do encounter somebody that's more of a predator, that they set out to do something wrong from the get-go. And, and anybody in the receiving end of that would never have a chance because there's, you know, most people don't, you know, go into commercial relationships with the expectation that the other party's a sociopath. So uh, <laughs> it, uh, you're, you're already at a disadvantage. What can the study of white collar criminals do to assist organizations to improve their internal controls and ethics and compliance programs? Or is there anything to be gleaned from their study and that can be applied in, in this way? So, yeah, I, I think organizations and, and companies, but other organizations that try to, to teach and train can recognize that you have to get people thinking differently than is otherwise instinctual for them to try to avoid, you know, crossing those lines. They, they, they need, I think people in the business world need to be sensitive to, to what I said before, you know, it, they need to have a part of their brain that's always running like on autopilot that is always imagining, wait, could what I'm be doing right now be unfairly harming somebody, a customer, an investor, you know, a lender, whoever it is. Is there a way someone will say what I'm doing was, was unfair, deceptive, abusive? And 99 times out of 100, the answer to that question should be easy. But for those occasions where you're, you're getting to that line or crossing it, you got to have that part of your brain that's always testing what you're doing against uh, against that possibility that this might be against the rules, too aggressive, or there might be something wrong otherwise with what you're doing. I think that makes a lot of sense. I, I think especially compliance programs need to have a behavioral lens and not just, I'll say, legalistic lens. I mean, one example I like to think about is employees are generally have to annually attest that they will follow the firm's code of conduct and that they will report violations. And employees also have to sign this. Everyone signs it kind of without any thought at the end of the year. And if you actually ask people, um, did you see misconduct? If so, did you report it? We've done this asking people, and there's been studies that ask hundreds of thousands of people this question, that literally have signed up a legal document saying that they would report these violations if they observe them. What you find, it's always between 30 and 40% of people who observe violations actually report them. And so there's this disconnect between people legally sign, you know, some document or code of conduct, which obviously is important from the firm's, you know, liability and protection, but it really doesn't address the underlying issue, which is firms actually want to try to encourage and nudge people to report, to try to mitigate these things before they grow. And so simply having employees sign a document doesn't solve that. Uh, it only solves kind of one part of that broader puzzle. Oh, that's a really important point that you make. So one of the things that I think some people might find very surprising is that many white collar criminals don't really receive a significant financial benefit from what they've done. And, and sometimes they receive no benefit at all, no, no direct personal benefit. How does a company safeguard against someone like that? And are there any red flags for this category of white collar criminal that companies can be alert for? I think one of the great things about Eugene's book is, you know, he, he begins in the early chapters by making this point, which is that 
everyone assumes, and there have been you know public statements by prominent U.S. attorneys to this effect, that you know white collar criminals are the ultimate in in cost benefit analysis. Like th- these people are really good. They they take the risk of being caught, the impact of being caught, and the gain, and they balance all those factors and decide, yes, I'm going to break the law, or no, I shouldn't break the law. And if you take that view, which I, I think is is clearly wrongheaded, but if you take that view then all you have to do is increase the chances of getting caught and increase the punishment, and then you'll you know, prevent virtually all white-collar crime. Well, I think history has shown that that doesn't work, and that is wrong, because people will take incredible risks of career-ending and, and really life-changing punishment for very little gain or almost no gain at all. And so that that is an incredibly important insight. And if you realize that what's motivating people are not just, you know, the year-end bonus or how much they'll make on a particular trade, but it's, you know, other things too. It's status at work. It's, you know, social hierarchy. I mean, there are other things besides monetary costs at play here in motivating people. And then if you take the insight we discussed earlier that people won't always know until it's too late that they've crossed that line or they might not, you know, fully become aware of it, then it obviously means we have to try to motivate people and create different disincentives than simply, you know, more SEC investigators, more criminal investigators, and, you know, ever more punitive sentences for white collar crime. Thanks, Nick. So one last question for Eugene. Eugene, you interviewed nearly 50 of the most notorious white collar criminals of the modern era. Who surprised you the most and and why is that? I'm going to maybe give a an aggregate answer because I think it's how everyone thought of themselves in reference to everyone else that surprised me most. So if you talk with the people who engage in insider trading, they would generally say, you know, yes, something's wrong in the end, but you know, in the scheme of things, nothing was harmed, you know, no company was broken because of this. Um, It's the people engaged in fraud that destroyed a company. And if you talk with the people who engaged in fraud, financial fraud, they would say, you know what, I at least was trying to build something we were being too aggressive and yeah, we screwed up, but it's the people who engage in Ponzi schemes that weren't trying to create anything that were really problematic. And if you talk to the people who engage in Ponzi schemes, some of them, and I, should, I spoke with all the people who engage in all the largest, they would say, yes, you know, in the end, yes, a billion dollars or several billion was lost. But in the end, that's not as bad as, let's say, someone from some large bank that this was, you know, after the financial crisis lost, you know, hundreds of billions of dollars. And it's this bizarre ability to kind of rationalize no matter where you are, that there's always someone else, even when you're engaged in a multi-billion dollar Ponzi scheme, which is really kind of the pinnacle of the pyramid of you know, white collar crime, that you can find even someone else that you could kind of put more blame to. And I think that that's what I found most surprising, that even sitting in prison, everyone can, again, rationalize why they're not really the bad guy. Uh, there's always someone else that's worse. So those rationalizations continue well into their incarceration. <laughs> you probably have a lot more time in prison, too. It's <laughs> true. A little more creative. Time, time on your hands to contemplate. This has been great. Both offered some great insights with us and really uh, appreciate the two of you uh, joining me today. Glad to be here. Thank you, Scott. Thank you, Scott. That was Sullivan and Cromwell partner Nick Burton and Harvard Business School professor and bestselling author Eugene Soltis. This concludes this episode of Fraud Eat Strategy. I'm Scott Moritz, Senior Managing Director in FTI Consulting's Forensic and Litigation Consulting segment. And stay tuned for the next episode of Fraud Eat Strategy when we'll hear from Arnold and Porter partner Baruch Weiss 
on the OFAC challenge when compliance is a moving target. If you have an idea on a fraud or corruption case, topic, or guest that you'd like to hear from on a future episode, email us at fraudeatsstrategy at fticonsulting.com. Thank you for listening.